any time that I'm out calling. And I'm really grateful to be here. There's a lot of, lot of familiar and friendly faces out there and folks that I think the world of up here. And uh, I thank you so much for asking me and letting me be a part of this. And Katie, I really, really love your talk wherever you are back there, honey. In fact, with an open act like that, with an open act like that, if I never have an open act for six months, nobody will remember who Clancy is. <laughs> Great talk, and uh, the energy is just, just beautiful. And uh, my sweet wife Sharon and my daughter Heather's here tonight. Sharon is sweet enough to come up with me, and Heather is newly sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, um, <laughs> this is her very first conference, so we are just really grateful to have Heather. And Mick's been great. And, all, all of you have been great. Um, now, Miss Kathy has read for us here tonight. I want to tell you a little something about this. She was sitting beside me back there, and uh, I don't hear very well anyway, and, and sometimes I don't pay very good attention to even if I can hear. And uh, at the end of uh, at the end of Katie's talk, and you got all the pandemonium at the end of the talk and so on, and I didn't know since I was talking at 8.30 whether we'd have the Lord's Prayer and a break or whether we'd just go right on with it. So I turned around, and I'm leaving. She said, sir, I think we're supposed to say a prayer. And I bet she's thinking, wow, I'm in for a treat. And I'm really going to make her feel a lot better because I had brain surgery, as you may be able to tell, uh, in the summer of 2013. Now, one of two things is true. Either I don't have any brain damage, or I have so much that I don't know it. And either way, I'm fine. You may be in a lot of trouble, but I'm fine. <laughs> And this, by the way, is something that my dear friend Bob Designs taught me, and I do this to give you hope. <laughs> but what I need to do is, uh, <clears throat> is get some divine intervention, and I truly need divine intervention every day of my life. And the first place I need divine intervention with tonight is to get me out of the way. And you all don't know it, but you need it too to get me out of the way. And uh, by the grace of God, my surprise today is April the 9th of 1981. And that is about the grace of God and great sponsorship and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm sober. And I have a home group. That home group is the Calm Down Group. A couple of other and I started it 25 years ago, and I named it. Uh, it meets on Wednesday at 5 p.m., and by Wednesday at 5 p.m., I need to calm down. <laughs> but I have to have that divine intervention. I can't get me out of the way. I, I'm not a bit more capable of getting me out of the way tonight than I was in April 1981. Just way too big a job for me. And by the way, if you like I was when I first got here and you were intellectually offended about some old fool up here going on about divine intervention, not only do I understand, you in my old seat. Uh, and, and, and I have a suggestion for you. Just use the term magic from the steps, and it'll get you to the same place, and it won't offend your sensitive intellect so terribly. Well, whatever name I need to help, and where I'm really going to need is I'm going to try to follow directions. And I assure you, I've got a long and sad history with the directions. Uh, 
This little fellow inside me, he and I have always been the world's greatest experts on everything. Now, whether we know anything about it, not totally beside the point. And, and, and this little fellow and I are not only so well informed, we are tremendously sophisticated and worldly. We know how the world really works. We know, for instance, who's always in charge of making the directions. It's square giants. Just button down conservative square giants. And they usually be an advanced by insurance lawyers who are worse than they are. And we understand the target audience of the direction. It's always just morons, stone morons. And, 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 and those of you here that know me understand that my case is different. Uh, those of you who are new, that is a joke. Uh, but, but all my life, if I haven't done the work I need to do today, on what is this, November the 7th, uh, if I haven't done the work I need to do today to get my divine intervention, and if I've learned anything in 33 years of anything, I've learned two things. I've learned, number one, that I don't get much divine intervention on Friday based on what I did on Thursday. It's truly a day to time deal. The other thing I've learned is that I've got a loving God that will do almost anything for me. But I have a loving God that won't do very much for me without my cooperation. And I assure you that if I haven't done the work I need to do today to get my help, if I see or hear something that, for instance, says, do not exceed six in 24 hours, my brain will actually register that as really meaning something like, do not exceed 36 in 24 hours. And the directions I want to follow are, of course, the simple ones that we hear often, and a little bit about what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now. And there's another set of directions in the book that we don't talk about as much, but that I, I really love and I hope my story carries it. That it says words to the effect that our, uh, our personal stories tell in our own language and from our own point of view how we've been able to form a relationship with our Creator. And I really hope my story carries that because in April of 1981, a loving God that I didn't even know was there having anything to do with my life at all gave me some gifts that I didn't even know for a long time I had. The primary gift that loving God gave me was the first tiny little bit of teachability or humility I've ever had in my life. The first willingness to do some things that were suggested even though I didn't understand them, I didn't agree with them, I didn't think they would work, and I certainly didn't want to do them. Every time I say that, that little fellow inside me holds up a sign that says, what's wrong with that? Why in the world should an halfway intelligent person do something about their life if they don't understand it or they don't agree with it or don't think it'll work? When I get honest in my case, it's really simple. I've got a talking voice. My alcoholism has been running its mouth at me all my life. And I've always had an old crazy picture show rolling in the back of my head. I'm sorry to tell you that 33 years a day at a time without a drink, Several thousand AA meetings, several trips to the steps, alcoholics anonymous have not made that go away. The old crazy picture shows rolling on just like it always rolled. And all the talking that my alcoholism does to me brings to mind to me what is the most terrifying single thing about my alcoholism. And my alcoholism is a many splendor thing. It's got so many parts that I stumble across a new part every few days. And I think I will, as long as I live and stay sober. But uh, well, what's so scary about this is that 
my alcoholism has never tried to kill me. And I'll probably tell you in a few minutes and updates you know that I've nearly died of alcoholism a number of times. But my alcoholism has never tried to kill me because it doesn't care what I've never done. And my alcoholism doesn't care whether you never die. My alcoholism is the perfect social factor. It's only got one reason for existing, and that's try to get itself that next drink. And it'll tell me anything on earth in order to get it. It'll tell me something that will kill you, me, both of us. It'll tell me totally inconsistent lies, just back-to-back -back with one another, slaying it up against the wall and hope some of it stick. Well, most of the time, and that's an important phrase, most of the time, that doesn't even bother me anymore because I recognize that that's not the reality of all those things that is telling me, and I don't have to obey it. In fact, a good deal of the time, I can laugh at it, and I assure you, some funny crap goes on the back of my head. But most of the time, it's an important phrase. If you've been around here 30 days, you've probably heard somebody say that alcoholism is, uh, <coughs> is a disorder of our perception. And you know, that's a nice clinical-sounding term. I have a disorder of my perception. But when I think about it, all the world, that means is I don't see things right. I don't hear them right. I don't always recognize them for what they are. So the bottom line for me is really simple. With the progressive and incurable, <laughs> it's the fatal thing I've got wrong with me. When I put that final veto in the universe in my little old brain, that I'm not going to do it unless I understand it. And I agree with it, and I think it'll work. And I have put myself under death sentence. And I stay in the death sentence until I get that out of my brain. I believe it with all my heart. Well, <coughs> I grew up on a tobacco farm about 200 miles southwest here on the Kentucky-Tennessee line. And uh, probably the most informative thing I'll tell you about my early life is that it wasn't a thing like I thought it was. There's absolutely no resemblance. My capacity for self-delusion is astounding. And, and, and if I haven't done the work I need to do today, it's totally intact, believe me. And I was 37 when I got sober. I know it's hard for me to believe I was 37, but it really was. And, and up until that time, I would have passed any lie detector test on Earth when I told you the really interesting and romantic saga. It was way past the mere story about my early struggles and my subsequent rise to power. <laughs> and, of course, it was all about how by my iron will and my sterling intellect, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps from the depths of poverty to those staggering heights I've reached in life. And I believe they crept so sincerely, I would have you and me both crying before I was halfway done happening. And I wasn't so overweight until I realized, man, what a load of crap. We weren't even poor. Uh, we weren't anywhere close to poor. We were middle class farming people and had everything we needed and most of the things we wanted. And, and those staggering heights I thought I'd reached were a good deal more staggering than they were high. Uh, another part of my mini-splintered thing is something that my high school English teacher would probably have called a disease of superlatives. And what that means is that without divine invention, I won't think in terms of things like good or bad and ordinary won't cross my mind. I'll go to exactly immediately to the extremes of everything. That's worse. Truth is, both drunk and sober, I've always been a whole lot more ordinary than many go has ever been comfortable with. Uh, and what was going on the first 12 or 13 years of my life wasn't any of that interesting romantic crap I thought was going on. Uh, Katie referred to the 
the third step, where it says it's self-deception, is that we think the root of our troubles. And, and what that's meant to me, really, ever since I've been sober, is that uh, the first thing wrong with me is that I've had a disorder of my ego. I've had it all my life. It's been the centerpiece of my life, drunk and sober, is that, is that disorder of my ego. And on account of that disorder of my ego, I'm so obsessed with myself. I'm so obsessed with how I believe I stack up against other people in this world. I'm so obsessed with how I feel that for many years I boiled the bedrock of my alcoholism, where it all starts, down to one sentence. I'm not peddling it to you, but I believe it's true of me. And here's that sentence. Without divine intervention, I will always wind up letting how I feel be the most important thing in the universe. Now, without divine intervention, I can give some lip service for something being more important than how I feel. I might be protected for just a little while, I think it's more important. But if I haven't done the work I need to do, that's all the smokescreen. When the chips get down, I'm going to go back to my default position. And that default position is always the same, letting how I feel be the most important thing in the universe. And that obsession with myself has always created that so much pain and emptiness down inside me that I've never been able to stand the way I feel inside without either running as hard as I can and or stuffing something in there to try to make me feel good enough that I can stand. And that ego disorder really, it, it, as I said, totally just dominated everything. Some of the things it's done kind of humorous. For instance, it has always made me an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And what I mean by that is I've always been perfectly capable of feeling too good for something or somebody. At the same instant, knowing I wasn't nearly good enough for that same person or that same thing. I've always known that I could do anything. At the same time, I've always known that I couldn't do anything. And that's been bouncing around my head for nearly 71 years. And, and, and in the end of itself, I don't have bothered with that all that much, but, but, but it's always made me, I can't be just without something to go in there and take care of that pain and that emptiness and that, that difference. I, I can't be okay with you or anything on the face of this earth. I can't be on your level. Insanely, I can be above you, below you, and both at the same time. But I can't be just okay with you or anything else unless I've got something to fill that emptiness and do something about the pain inside me because of that obsession in myself, that disorder of me to go. So the real story for the first 13 years of my life is a totally self-obsessed kid trying to stay a half step ahead of a screaming kid. Trying to keep all the balls juggling, the bells ringing, the lights flashing, the mirrors working, smoke shooting out so that you couldn't see, or I thought you couldn't see, what I was and what I wasn't. And a part of me knew that I'd have to look at it if you saw, and it was like the earth would swallow me up through that emptiness in my own bed. So that's the mess I brought for my first drunk. I was 12 or 13, that first night I got in an awful lot of trouble, and I puked, and I blacked out, and I passed out, and I woke up the next morning and had a terrible hangover, and I swore all those Baptists were right, and I would never, ever do that again. And not only was that sincere, it was actually fairly effective because it was nearly a week until I got drunk the second time. <laughs> and the way things are going to go for the next 25 years, that was an absolute miracle because it's, it's just real simple. I don't think there's anything mysterious about my powerlessness over alcohol. In fact, I think it's a no-brainer. It couldn't have been any other way. When I found something that finally made me feel the way I needed to feel inside, and the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe. For the next quarter of a century, <coughs> I didn't know anything other than the booze and the things like it could make me feel the way I needed to feel. 
So the bottom line was really, really simple. It didn't matter what it cost. And it didn't matter who it cost. Because it was the only thing that let me feel the way I needed to feel. And that's the most important thing in the universe to me. Uh, <coughs> I'm not going to give you uh, much of a drunk law, but I will let you know that I didn't come in here because you gave me the hiccups. Uh, uh, during the 25 years that I drank, I'm very confident that I went to bed drunk at least 80% of the nights. I had no idea it was going to be a drunk that often because the only standard I had for whether or not I was drunk was whether or not I blacked out. If I remembered everything, that discussion was over. I was not drunk. <laughs> and now that I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and, and, and uh, I live in Louisville now, but now that Kentucky's got that legal limit down to four lower weight, I probably woke up drunk 80% of the mornings. And, and we all have different stories of, of our drinking, and I'm, I'm, I'm really acutely aware that part of our peculiar mental twist seems to me that it's at least as easy for us to exaggerate how bad we were as it is for us to exaggerate how great we are. <laughs> but uh, the best I can remember, and I believe it's right, is that I never apologized for my drinking. I never hit it. Uh, <coughs> you had to accept the way I drank and the way I lived you had to get out of my life. Uh, by the time I was in my mid-teens, I figured out that if anybody stayed close enough to me long enough in any capacity whatsoever, they would wind up going to those long and drink. And when they did that, if I couldn't change their position, they had just punched their ticket out of my life. I'm not proud of that. It's probably a pretty fair, partial description of a social man. But for the last roughly 20 years that I drank, I don't believe I even had people in my life. I had positions. And whatever your position was, I probably had your replacement interviewed at any given time. <laughs> and I've had to do an awful lot of men's work on town then. It's simply the way that it, that it was with me. Um, and, and by the way, and I hit the ground running on the drinking. There was, there was no lag. And, and it was, in today's world, a kid that drank the way I drank and acted the way I acted would have his butt put in an asylum by the time he was 14, his 14th birthday. But the 1950s in Trigg County, Kentucky, were a different world. Uh, if you were cute enough and you were smart enough, and if you had the right place name, you could get away with murder. And I practically did. But by the time I was 16, I was winding up my junior year of, of, of high school. I was still, because of the culture in Trigg County, I was still holding on to my life by the fingernails. But I knew that it was about to fall tumbling down, and I knew why. No denial. I knew it was on account of my grave. So I knew one way about it, it's time for me to get out of college. And of course, the ego man is assuring me that the back of that can't hold something as hot as I was anyway. So I got on the Greyhound bus by myself when I was 16 and went 200 miles up to the big little Kentucky city of Louisville. And I kicked around for a few days. I wound up on the doorstep of the University of Louisville, and they gave me a bunch of tests and led me in as an early admission student with an academic scholarship. And my reaction to that was to stay so drunk the first semester that I just lost all concept for day and night. It was just a matter of passing that time and time. And of course, I blew the scholarship. And then for the next seven and a half years, I worked full time, I drank full time, I went to school full time. And somehow I got through undergraduate and law school. And I haven't got a clue how that happened. When I look back on that whole eight years, I don't have a handful of clear memories. It's just all a swirling gray mess of alcoholic insanity. 
spring of 1968. I graduated from law school, and my sweetheart, Dana, was born. Uh, Dana's 46 now. She was my only, only child uh, for 20 years now. Sharon and I have Sharon sweet daughters who are my daughters too, and, and uh, we have them. But as far as the ones that I am few uh, or really biologically responsible for, I've got Dana, I've got some just 25, so they had a pretty good little leg there from 46 to 25, and Dana was the only child for a long time. Started practicing on downtown local, and I practiced for about 10 years with a pretty good little bit of material success. Uh, another part of our peculiar mental twist is that as we stay sober longer, we get a different focus on the facts. So I wasn't nearly as successful as I used to think I was. Uh, but but I, I, I was very materially successful. I've always been a criminal defense lawyer. I've always had a, a knack for getting involved in some cases that have got some money in them and from time to time publicity. And that's what I was thinking your phrase when you suggested that there was something wrong with somebody who lived as insanely as I lived. And I already told you how it was for the years leading up to that. Well, it escalated. It got worse. It got worse because alcoholism simply progresses and everybody that's ever had it. And it got worse because I had some money to escalate it with. During that 10 years, I began to use a world of things other than the booze. And I used a world of them. But before you get your sentence of purpose, nippers all in a twist. And it's like this. Just exactly, my story is just exactly like Bill and Dr. Bob. If you don't believe it, go read this show. Uh, the booze was always the big tent. Everything else was a science show. Everything else was something that maybe changed the effect of it. It maybe increased the effect, maybe decreased the effect. Maybe helped me try to function on the hangovers. But the Buddhist was the Alpha and Omega with me. February 10th, 1978, I'd been practicing law almost 10 years, uh, and I was holding on to that life by my fingernails, but that one was about to go too. And that, uh, that, that, uh, that day I got, well, I'm just going to tell you what I got full of. I got full of scotch, cocaine, poisonous speed, and vodka. And I, and I drove Corvette off to the Pennywell Parkway down on the Kentucky Tennessee lands at almost 130 miles an hour. Did an awful lot of bad things to my body. I crushed both knees really badly. I, I lost part of the main artery in one lower leg. Had to do a bypass and upper leg, take out a vein to grab the end of the artery. It separated my pelvis and pulled my internal quantum into it so that I didn't have a urinary function for over a year. I had uh, what they call a superpubic cancer, which is just a plastic cube with a flange on it where they roll a hole in the abdomen and pop it in to carry your urine out your bag. I was in the hospital for more than six months total out of that first year after the red cancer. I had those major they took me to the Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville because I was a lot closer to that than I was uh, to Louisville. And it took about an hour and a half to get me there. And I still had a blood alcohol of over 0.40 in addition to all the other stuff that was in my body. And I was not in a blackout. Uh, I woke up two or three times during the emergency surgery because they were terrified to give me enough anesthesia to keep me under with all the stuff that was, that was in my body. But uh, <coughs> the uh, doctors there... Gave me the prognosis that I would never walk again without a beast brace on one leg, and that they were very sure that we'd never find a surgeon anywhere that would attempt to find the ends of my plumbing and put them back together so that I would have a urinary function. By the grace of God, they were wrong. And it didn't have anything to do with me following directions. We know that. 
So over 33 years and have owned the brace, have owned the brace for over 34 years. And about a year after Rick began urology down at Duke University, did put my funding back together and restore my urinary function. But I didn't know that was going to happen. Now, there at Vanderbilt, they didn't know who I was, and they didn't treat me with nearly the appropriate deference. And, uh, and by, by the way, I have information about that, Rick. I had a young lady with me who was not my daughter's mother. And at the time of that break, I was remarried to my daughter's mother. Now, please feel free to ignore this, because it's not in the big room. And I promise you, it's the only sociological observation I intend to make. But over the years, I've just kind of looked around, and I'm pretty well concluded that the fact that I was remarried to the same woman establishes my alcoholism without further authentication. <laughs> I just don't believe a normie would do that. You know, I believe if a normie even thought about jumping right back in the frying pan that he just got out of, they'd say, Terry, to go off the asylum getting in to protect themselves. So if we do it routinely, drunk and sober, you know, oh, going through a divorce for a day, they'll probably get back together. And the bizarre thing is it works for us sometimes. It's not necessarily bad. I've had some people get really hot at me after my daughter telling that. It's not bad. It's just really different from ordinary people. <coughs> But uh, at any rate, obviously, I got a brand new divorce right here for that. And, 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 and I don't intend to make light of the pain that I have caused people. I've had to do an awful lot of amends based on that area in my life. But I'm also not going to fail to laugh at myself where I have been ridiculous. Uh, <coughs> so, at any rate, since they didn't know I was, didn't know I was, didn't treat me with the appropriate uh, difference there. Six or seven weeks after the wreck, when I got out of surgery and intensive care long enough to get myself moved against medical advice by ambulance back to Louisville, I did. And then for months I laid in the Louisville hospitals, and after I got back up there every single day, my friends came in and bought me booze and more dope than the doctors were giving me. And I was laying there with that prognosis of never walking without a brace and never being again. And I would say really intelligent things. I would say, you know, fellas, anybody can stop stop drinking when the going gets so rough. But it takes a man to be in there with him when the bills start coming in. And then I would explain to him that a man ought not to be out there doing the crime if he wasn't prepared to do the time. And just because I hit a little bump in the road, they weren't going to hear me win. Give me another drink that's gone with it. That's insanity. That's powerlessness. If you really think about it, that is absolutely letting the way I feel in that instance be the most important thing in this world. Letting how I feel in that instance be more important than my child, more important than my profession, more important than whether I ever walked, more important than whether I ever peed, more important than whether I live or die. Letting how I feel in that moment be the most important thing in this universe. I didn't go work right away after the wreck. I got a little law firm, but a few lawyers had built out for them. This other fellow myself. So I had a little money coming in for a while. And uh, I, I married the young lady that was with me in that wreck during that period. She was not very as bad as I as she had on a seatbelt. And uh, um, <coughs> about a year after that wreck, around the first year in 1979, I made my first trip to the asylum. And I'm not using that word to be cute. See, Bill Wilson uses it in the big book. And my mom used that word. When I was a kid in Trick County, Kentucky, people did not have substance abuse problems and go to treatment. Nor did they have breakdowns and go to the hospital. 
they went crazy and were put in asylum. And that's a whole lot more descriptive of what kept happening to me, I'm sure of that. <coughs> and when I got into yeah, that first trip, I still had the braces and the crutches, cubed in my bed and cancer bag, and the phenomenon of craving that the, that, that the doctor's opinion talked about had progressed in me to the point where once I started drinking, I had physically lost the ability to stop. Drunk and sober, I've had 14 or 15 major surgeries. And I want to tell you that none of those surgeries have even gotten in the ballpark of hurting me nearly as much as each one of the last couple hundred times I had come off that phone call. Most painful, most nightmarish, expensive experience I've ever been through in my life. <clears throat> and something by that time had to get, had to prize me years from alcohol. And when he did, it took three or four days for me to be able to do something like set up in a chair like you guys do. Well, they got me through the three or four days. They sat me in a chair and they had me Navy. And somebody started reading the steps. And somebody I know now, but they got the third step. But it was some sort of metaphysical crank from that turning my will in life over some mythical God thing that we talked about. And you can imagine how that insulted my intelligence. So I climbed up on my crutches and straightened out my casket bag and, and said as loud as I could, do you mean to tell me there are people who believe such crap? And then I hop on over the telephone and get somebody to come get me away from those religious fanatics before they polluted my pristine intellect. That was somewhere around the first year of 1979. I got sober about two and a half years later, later in April of 81, and I really don't remember any of that, how much of that. Some things I do know happened in that two and a half years, but I went back to the asylum 17 more times. Uh, I became addicted to hard narcotics and so grateful for that because that far enough legal and social pressure on my law partners to cause them to keep me out of the law firm that I founded. And I proved that I wasn't going to make the decision at his bottom. And if you knew, please hear me on that. Don't sit around waiting for bottom to happen to you. I don't think bottom happens to us. I think bottom's a decision over which we've got all the control on earth. You know, this alcoholism deal that I've got is an elevator that's just flat hardwired to the basement. It can't be hidden anywhere else. That's where it's going if it's not interrupted. And the thing is that our families and the clergy and the medical folks and the folks in AA and all people that love us can't reach out and push that button for us to stop that elevator. And it turns out that the love of God we talk about in here won't push the button and stop the elevator. That's all it does. But anyway, excuse me, that was a trip. But I wasn't going to make that decision to hit bottom as long as I had a 10-mix watch. I certainly wasn't going to do it as long as I had a law firm. Right after you guys came out of that state, Kentucky Jerk, my law license, <coughs> the young lady that I had married had to leave me on account of that insanity. And during that period, she was staying with some girlfriends and died in an accident. Uh, my daughter Dana, my only child, I saw in January of 1980, and I didn't see her talk to Dana for over three years. The Internal Revenue took my interest in the office building that had been built in downtown Louisville and a couple of things like that. The mortgage companies took the homes, their collapsed rent, and it was just all gone. And for almost a year up until the fall of 1980, six months before I got sober, uh, I lived without an address on what I call the street and he's riding blue cross blue shield car. And in the fall of 1980, I watched up on the doorstep of asylum number 17 back in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, the fellow that was there 
but in charge of the finances there, told me later that he only let me in because he didn't think I would live a week if he left me on the street. And of course, I had no home, I had no car, I had no clothing, my teeth were riding out of my head. I stayed in there about 30 days, and I had no place to go, no way to get there, nothing. And uh, I had a young man that was my roommate there. And I was ancient. I was, what, 36 by that time. But man was 21, and uh, his family lived in Nashville. Those folks weren't really involved in AA. They were just sweet, spiritual people. And, you know, and I'm going to make a comment on that. Don't want to offend anybody, but, uh, you know, I had problems. That sweet Sharon said back to this to this talk tonight. Uh, and by the way, I took her to one of my talks on our second date, and I knew she'd either leave or I'd get her. When I looked back and saw it here, I thought I got her. But that sweet woman wakes up more spiritual than I get her after two hours of, of intense prayer, meditation, and working with intensity with another alcoholic. And yet, sometimes I have to catch myself to keep from saying, well, what on earth do you know about spirituality, sweetheart? You're not even an alcoholic, for God's sake. <laughs> and here's the truth as I believe it. I think in 1934, 1935, God took pity on a bunch of spiritual retardees <laughs> and put it into such a simple form that even we could begin to enjoy the wonderful spirituality that people have been enjoying for the many times. But these sweet folks felt sorry for me in Nashville. They said, why don't you come stay with us a few days? And I went there with them six months. No, I went with them a year, actually. Uh, and the first six months, I didn't stay straight, but it got better. And I had to get better. Uh, the shape I was in, for some reason, this always comes to my mind. A couple of months into my sobriety, I still had not regained the ability to use a knife and fork on food properly. And I was just embarrassed, I guess, to ask somebody who was feeding me, Jimmy, will you give me some hints on how to use these? We'd go to the AA meeting at the 202 Club in Nashville, and then we'd go to the Shoney's down the street, and I would sit there with a knife and fork under the table, kind of mimic what my friends were doing. And this is one example of the things that were not connected in my brain at that time. I remember sitting in a, dis- sitting in a discussion meeting about between two and three months over, and for some reason it hit me that I might actually stay sober. And then my mind started going wild. I thought, you know, someday I might be able to have a, a furnished room of my home. And I can either get Social Security disability or I am not even be able to work a little more in And I want to tell you that's exactly the spot I was in and what I felt like. And I thought maybe I could even have a cat. And that terrified me so much that I don't have a cold sweat. I'm just so afraid to think it's not all right to ever get that to it again. But it did get better during that six months before again. So I went to World of AA meetings, most of them at that 202 club in Nashville. I got to where I could go sometimes two or three weeks without getting ripped, and that was a world record for me in or out of the asylum. I was a master getting ripped in the asylum. But, and how I really know I got better during that six month period is they only put me back in an asylum one time. And the rate I've been going twice a year in the asylum looked like the picture of mental health. And <laughs> late March 1980, I got on my most recent, uh, or 1981 rather, I got on my most recent drunk. And it was another one of my pop-off vodka slash Mr. drunks. And <coughs> I have truly drunk a barrel of both those things. And this isn't a joke. I've got better memories of the Listerine than I do of that old hot pop-off. I can stand the smell of Listerine today, but I can't handle the pop-off, I assure you. But on this most recent drunk, I was drinking and taking everything that I could get my hands on. <laughs> and uh, 
Come April 8th of 81, the most recent day I drank. I've been drunk 10 days or two weeks. I was sitting on the bed in a motel in Nashville, letting God start giving me gifts. I had no idea that I got any gifts. Nothing seemed different to me at all. I seemed just as ego-driven, too intelligent, too complex for this program to work, and too long, right on the other hand, too much pitiful, pitiful incomprehensible, just awful. Back and forth. My ego telling me it won't work for you because you're so great. In fact, Satan's telling me it won't work for me because I'm so horrible, because I've gone down so far, there's no sense trying to get sober. Even if I got sober for a little while, it would just be to be blown in tune with the sawed-off shotgun and spend the rest of my life the penitentiary, and I want to tell you, from 33 years sober, I don't think there's any paranoia in there. I think the love of God has poured all among the troubled waters of my past to keep the worst of what could happen to me to the family. Uh, at any rate, uh, I shook out that drunk, got to it, and three or four days after, I stumbled back to the door of the 202 Club there in Nashville, and I didn't think they would let me in. And in today's world, they would not have let me in. I had passed out in their AA meetings and had to be bodily carried out. They caught me with controlled substances in their men's room. They had warned the people they sponsored to stay away from me because I was losing and I was going to die. About two months before I got sober, I was walking through that clubhouse. The big old boy has been dead for years by the name of Joe Wall. Joe was probably six or five. And he walked up, looked down at me, and said, Don, I'm beginning to think you really are too intelligent for this program. And I thought he was giving me a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure to thank goodness they're trying to figure out who they're dealing with. But Joe went on. And he said, that's the real shame Don because we have never had anybody to done for this deal, and we bury the buttholes all the time. And that felt like an icy hand closing over something inside me, and it's still there two months later when I stumbled back to that door. They did let me in. I remember exactly what was said and who said it. What they said was, come on in, you are keeping us sober. And I said, will you tell me one more time what I need to do if I want to live? They said, yeah, sure. Don't drink, don't take, don't go to meetings. By the grace of God, for 60 days, I went to 150 meetings. And if the best of my recollection, I didn't want to go to one of them. And I know that it was still absolutely clear to me that you guys were religious fanatics. Uh, and my brain was assuring me that what I needed to do was, <coughs> was get my head out of sand, get my blood back to the level, get some money, get a law license, good-looking woman, big car, be somebody for heaven's sake. But I've been given that beautiful gift, that first little bit of teachability and humility I never had, that first willingness and ability to turn around to my brain and say, yeah, I know, but you and I are here to kill one another. And we don't have anything left to do except go to those dumb old meetings. And thank God. Thank my loving God. And by the way, you know, I said it didn't seem any different to me. I have never seen a burning bush in full conflagration. Now I've seen about a thousand that are smoking something. You know, smoking bushes are where, oh, this is the pithy man. This is it. The tumblers have just fallen into place. This is life changing. Two weeks later, I hadn't done anything about it. I don't even remember what it was. Two or three times out of that thousand or so times in the smoking bush and times it did. What if I got out of my bellows? And what if I started giving the smoking bush to the lair? What if I started treating it like it's a burning bush? 
What if I started acting as if it had been a burning bush in my life? What if I started talking about it as if it may be a burning bush? And those have burst into flames. And I don't have any apologies for any hypocrisy that one might see in that, and here's why. Bill Wilson laid in a hospital bed, and he saw a flashlight. And he really didn't know whether it was a visitation from Angel Gabriel or the DTs. Dr. Silkworth came in the next morning, Bill told him what happened. Dr. Silkworth said, I don't know either of them, but it's got to be better than what you have. And what I would do if I were you was hold on to it. And what Bill Wilson did was get his bellows out. And he started fanning that smoking bush. And that's why I've been looking out. That's why I haven't been in a pauper's grave for over 33 years. Because I thought it's not as bad because Bill treated his smoking bush enough to let it burst into a burning bush. But at any rate, thank God I had the same thing backwards that I have had backwards every day of my life, and I continue to have backwards every day of my life that I haven't done the work I need to do to get my magic from the steps of divine intervention, and this is what it is. I will always make it all about what I think, feel, and believe. In nature, it does not occur to me to do the right thing if I don't feel like it. <laughs> 33 years sober, if I don't feel like doing the right thing, I might have called Gilda or Judy out of California and said, I don't feel like doing this. Let me just fix me. You know, we've got to get me good. Can I do an inventory and make me feel like doing right so I can do right? <laughs> You see, all my life I thought the difference between good people and me and me was that they felt like doing right. And if we could get me fixed so I felt like doing right, I could be good people too. I've known for many years that those people may not have felt a bit more like doing right than I did. They just did right anyway. And that made them good people. And I didn't. And regardless of what intentions were wobbling around my head, that made me bad people. It's not all about what I think, feel, believe, guys. It's all about what I do. Always has been. What I think, feel, believe has never gone into the record book one single time. What I thought, felt, and believed didn't hurt a soul when I was drinking. It was what I did and what I failed to do. And thank my loving God, my recovery is not dependent, dependent on what I think, feel, and believe. It's not dependent on how I am. It's right there in the book. Right there in the book on the main steps says our daily decree is contingent, not on our spiritual condition. And Katie started about reading the big book. I have trouble reading the big book. And the reason I have trouble is I already know what it says. And if you already know what it says, you're not getting a whole lot out of it. You know, my morning meditation for, for years and decades has continued to read the third step, print, seventh step, print, pages 86, 87, 88. Nanny Nanny Barnes out of honey, uh, 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 I know what I said. Every once in a long while, God will give me the, 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 the God's grace to see what the ink says on the paper. And sometimes it's revolutionary. And that was one of the biggest examples of it, because I'm going to tell you, I thought my reprieve re was contingent on my spiritual condition, and that was terrifying. That meant it was contingent on how I am. And there were days when I am ain't all that good. 
but it's not. It's contingent on the demands of my spiritual condition. Folks, that difference is the difference in turning these lights on and off. I have no power over how I am. I have never had any immediate power over how I am. So if that were true, on the days when I felt, it, when I felt cut off from you, I felt cut off from God, when I didn't want to get on my knees and pray, when I didn't want to help anybody else, when I wanted to just roll into a ball, on those days, I would be helpless. I would be a setting up. I could be instructed on any of those days. But what that means is, the maintenance of my spiritual condition is all action that I've got 100% control on. Regardless of how I think, I don't believe, regardless of how cut off I feel, regardless of how much I don't want to listen to your AA crap this morning, regardless of how much if God is one more response, he calls me to talk about the girl and going to scream. <laughs> I can make myself get on my knees, and I can make myself take those words. And when that sponsor calls and says, Heaven is set, just hope to tell him I'll call him back later for God's sake. And take a deep breath and say, Lord, please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand, rather than to be love, comfort, and understood. And say the old boy called me, let's call him Joe. I don't think I'm sponsoring Joe right now. Say he's called me about the girl eight times in the last 48 hours. I won't tell you, there's not much I care less about than Joe's and the girl's problems. But I can pick up that phone after that praying and I can say, Good morning, buddy. How are you? What can I do for you? And I can keep on praying that prayer that I will be done. I no longer run this show. And Lord, please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand Joe until the miracle happens. And just for a little while, I'll have a couple of stuff. And just for a little while, Joe becomes more, and Joe and that stupid girl become more important to me than I am. Just for a little while. And that's when the miracles really start happening. But anyway, what I thought then, when I was going to all those daily meetings there, I thought in order for it to work, I had to believe that it would work. I thought it had to feel like it was working. <coughs> and I think I thought I had to be able to see the causal relationship of A cause and B. Turned out that didn't have a thing to do with it. All I needed to do was get my raggedy butt to meeting after meeting, and that old sick brain and soul would be dragging that kicking and screaming behind the raggedy butt. And then they told me that I needed to read the big book. I said, I've read several times. They said, We know. You've been quoting it to us and criticizing the literary style while you've been dying. They said the first thing you need to get straight is that the big book is not the solution to your alcoholism. And I said, What? You've been telling me for two or three years that it's the solution to my alcoholism. They said, No, man. So we know you've been hearing that because you hear everything that way. But what we've been telling you, Don, is that the action described in the big book is the solution to your alcoholism. They said, this is not a philosophy book. It's nothing that you can learn or master that's going to transport you to a sublime state of sobriety. And they said, if you want to live, you better understand this. You better understand that you need to come back to that book like a little child and start the front cover and go through it line for line and reading only the black part, not the white part, not arguing with anything, memorizing anything, not even trying to learn anything, look at what it says to the seven clerks, what the book really is, is a simple instruction manual for your actions. That was when they explained to me the difference between, Katie was talking about this, the difference between the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can be a member of the fellowship of AA on any day I've got a desire to stop drinking. For decades, it hadn't even had to be an honest desire. 
I'd be a full-fledged member of the fellowship with a half button beside a stop drinker. And I can be going to ten meetings a week and talking the best recovery you ever heard. And I will indeed be a member of the fellowship of AA. And thank God there's no other requirement for that, by the way. But if I'm not somewhere in the process of doing steps one through nine, the way the book says do them, or having done that, I'm living every day of my life. I've done that to reach a state of recovery. My third sponsor told me that, you know, the first nine steps are a process of ego deflation. And that at the end of the first nine steps, if I'm done and right, my ego will be deflated and I will be recovered. He explained that, that in my case, he expected all that to last about eight seconds. That I would have to immediately start with steps 10, 11, and 12 in order to do that action to, 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 to keep myself alive. But anyway, um, they explained that if I did that, I might be a member of the fellowship that was not in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The program, they said, was numbered 1 through 12. And they also explained to me that the, the 12 steps are the prescription for alcoholism. That they work on alcoholism exactly like penicillin works on an infection. They explain that if I've got an infection that's going to kill me, if it's not treated, but it will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand the origin, weakness, and nature of my infection. And I certainly don't need to aggravate my friends in the medical profession finding about that. I don't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin works in the human body. I don't need to believe that that little bottle of pills can take care of all these terrible things wrong with wonderful me. And here's the real kicker. I don't need to want to take the pills. That's irrelevant. If I've got the infection and I take the pills as directed, I'll be just fine. Thank you. And they explained to me that the 12 steps were from alcoholism exactly that way. And I'm here to tell you that I have been able to give the truth of that, and I've been blessed with seeing it work in so many, many other lives over the last 33 years. That saved my life. And then they told me if one day I was going to have been on my knees every morning and every night and ask and thank the Calvary and myself, the tears started out. I mean, I remember the instant clearly. Uh, the tears were running down my cheek, and I, I was explaining to them how the second step was killing me. Because, you see, I had known by that time, I had known for over two years that the only outside chance I had of it was to get this thing that you guys had. I knew that. No denial. And for over two years, I had tried with every bit fiber of my being. I thought in order to get it, I had to somehow make myself start thinking, feeling, and believing more like it looked like to me you thought, felt, and believed. And I had tried every way I knew to do it. So I'm sitting there with the tears coming down my cheeks, explaining to my teeth, do the praying that the second step's killing me. And thank the loving God I was given ears to him when they said, oh, Don, you've got that backwards thing. We have never suggested that you think, feel, or believe anything. And my mouth probably fell up because I think that's the whole deal. They said, no, we wouldn't do that. So in the first place, you apart to the old have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs. And they said, in the second place, the issue of whether you live or die will be determined solely by what you do. What you think, feel, or believe won't have anything to do with it. So they said, if you want to live, get down on your knees and start saying those words. Don't worry about what crazy picture show is going on. That won't count. Sometime in the latter part of April of 81, over my brain's allowed to be told. Uh, 150% accuracy of the embarrassed, even though I was by myself. 
I started getting on my knees in the morning and asking and getting on my knees at night and thinking, and the miracle of the second step began to happen to me. It turned out if I had waited until I was really intellectually believed that second step, that there was some sort of higher power out there that was going to intervene in my life and take care of the humanly insoluble dilemma that I had admitted I was in in step one. If I had to wait until I intellectually believed that I had been in that proper grave. It turned out when I became willing to act like the person would act if they did believe it, that was just fine. And the actual belief came in behind it. They, 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 they took me through the third step there. They finally got it through my head that, that, that the third step is, uh, is only a decision. It doesn't turn the thing over to God. Uh, I thought that that was all semantic. I said, well, pray tell. You're one of the more semantics. So it's just a decision. I know where the complexity is. How did you implement that decision? And so that is the simple. And all you were, all you were, uh, uh, Agreeing to do is first the rest of the steps. And second, you're agreeing to try to do the next right thing instead of what you want to do when you can fix. They said, our little paragraph on bottom page 62, which they tell us is the, it's the key to those beautiful third step prayer, uh, promises on, on 63. And they tell us that it's the keystone that, that holds the whole arch together. Bill tells us four times in a row the same thing. He says, we had to quit being God, it didn't work. And he tells us the same thing. In this drama of life, we, we're going to let God be the director. We're going to let God be the principal. We're going to be the agent. We're going to let God be the parent. We're going to be the child. And he goes on to tell us that this simple idea is the keystone. And it's the basis for all those three things. They told me that if I would do that, that I wouldn't have to worry about my will and my will in life became that God would make my will in life what it should be. I lived in Nashville 21 months sober, uh, was unemployed, uninvolved. When I celebrated a year sober, I was living in an attic with no phone or car, getting drinking, riding out of my head, happy, and I'd ever been in my life. Uh, <laughs> and about, uh, I did my fourth fifth step, and I formed a picture of what a spiritual dawn ought to look like. Uh, I went back to my attic, and I got my big book, it followed directions exactly. I got a big half shelf, I couldn't do that, but I got down, and I spent one hour reviewing the first five steps, it looked all right to me. So I thought I was done read it for six and seven. You know, we've got nearly a half page in the book devoted to six and seven. On the top page seventy six, the twelve tells got a lot more devoted, but the big book has only that. So I got on my knees to the third step prayer, was convinced that that was win with God's help. I went to work on me to make me what I had decided a spiritual dawn ought to be. And until I was nine years sober, I believed that that not only was correct, I believed that it was the only way for me to be responsible was to do that. <laughs> about a year and a half sober, as a byproduct of steps eight and nine, my law license got put back in order. Twenty-one months sober, scared to death, I went back to Louisville. If I could have gotten a job to 7-Eleven at minimum wage in Nashville, I would have not gone back to Louisville, and that's no joke. I was terrifying, and I don't think it was any paranoia in that either. I don't think I had any business back up there. Crap, I've done. But I wasn't back 30, minutes, 30 days until I thought, oh, well, AA might be even better than Nashville. And the second month, I was in town, February of 1983, 22 months sober. I was at my first conference like there is tonight, uh, and uh, <coughs> I didn't even know there were conferences. I don't think I may have had a vague idea. <laughs> and the Saturday morning speaker, the 
by the way, conferences were bigger then. When I first started speaking, there were many fewer conferences, and they were much, much larger than they are now on, on, on the average. And the Kentucky State Division in Louisville was what I was in. There were 2,000 people there. And Don Phipps, who I later came to know and love, and then is today, was supposed to be the only one speaker. And Don got snowed in at an airport out west. And I went to Southern, the Saturday morning speaker kept going on and on and on. I had to pee and pee and pee. And, and finally, about an hour and a half, I said, yeah, I don't know whether it's rude. I don't know whether you do this. It's not, it's not but I'm going to go pee. So I started heading to the men's room, and the, the host, host for me, he was there hugging. And one of them looked over at me and said, I heard him over at Herbert's lane. And I said, let's put him up there. So they put me up there between two months sober and in front of 2,000 people. And, and I thought that was awful. And my judgment of events in my life was just as 180 degrees off things as always been. If I think it's the most terrible thing that ever happened, that there's absolutely no redeeming quality to it, if I can manage not to drink and try to put one foot in front of the other and do the next right thing, God will make it the foundation of the most beautiful things in my life. On the other hand, is when I first see it, I think it's the greatest thing since Christ bread. It's probably getting ready to try to kill me. But at, at any rate, but because of that, one of the nice things started happening. Uh, people started saying, will you speak here? Will you get a response? Will you do that? And my law practice started coming back to Gary in for a scene. You know, I'm driving a decent car, wearing nice clothes, and, and I'm being sponsored more and more people and speaking more and more, even though I wasn't sober for just a, a few years. By the time I was nine years old, um, my first nine years were in Kenya. They were wonderful. But the first nine years I was sober, relationships with the opposite sex and financial chaos like to kill me. They like to have beaten me to death. And I want to tell you, when you're going to do what I was doing during those years, it erodes your spiritual childhood when you're sponsoring all these people and that sort of thing. And I don't know about, about psychological theories, but the one that you stop maturing emotionally when you start drinking alcohol, it seems like it's probably right with me. Because I was about 13, and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, if any woman that had at least a bit of trouble getting a job haunting a house showed any interest in me, I would pay, I, I, I would pass any lab detector test on earth when I carefully proclaimed undying blood. Sometimes we could end days later and think, but don't get away from her right now, I've got that tendency, I've got to get away from her right now. Keep on doing that over and over. It's kind of hard to keep the act together. But at any rate, Jerry Carpenter, my original sponsor, had died in that winter of 89-90. And uh, I got Tom B., who's still a sponsor from Avon Lake, uh, Ohio. And, and uh, Tom and uh, spoken together several places. I flew up to Cleveland in May of 1990 to spend a weekend with a new sponsor. And some things started happening. It was a great weekend. They had a, a Cleveland Akron 88 golf tournament that weekend. I don't play golf, but boy, I got to meet some really, really drinking sobriety and that one old man there that weekend who drank with Dr. Bob. And Tom must have told him that this little clown that he was representing that thought he was doing such a hot job because what I made the remark, oh yeah, it's over about that in 10 years. That's about the time most of us begin to look at steps six and seven. Well, by that time, I listened to at least 50, maybe 100 tips. So I'm thinking, you don't know who you're talking to, old man. 
And before I left there that weekend, there wasn't any burning books that weekend either, but there was talk of step 67, and something began to happen. I began to realize, and the word realize is an important word to me, and I used to think that to realize something was the same thing as to know it, but realize is a form of the word real. When I have realized something, that literally means it has become real inside me. There's so many things that I've known for 30 years that I haven't realized. Uh, <coughs> but let me jump back to the praying. Um, to the best of my knowledge, when I started getting on my knees morning in 1981, except for a few days when I'd been in the hospital and I literally could not get out of the bed, and the last 24 years, Sharon has knelt down and held my hand and we've prayed that way. I got on my knees every morning and night. But I'm not telling you that to be a man. I'm telling you that to make a point that I think is in massive irony. There's nothing more important than this point. You see, when I started to come to believe, uh, and I began to really think my prayer was important to me in ministry, I would have these days, as I still sometimes do, and I just often think that. But I'd have the mornings, I had a lot of them, and my brain was spinning. And then I was so scared and I was so obsessed with myself, I couldn't make a place for it. I just tried to pray. And it was so clear to me that the words were bouncing off the walls and ceiling and it couldn't possibly be doing any good. So I went to my sponsor, Cherry, with that problem. And Cherry said, Don, your ego's going to pin you here. He said, let's examine this. He said, are you under the impression that God is unaware of your needs unless you specifically delineate them? He says, or maybe you believe God is so lacking in power that he or she is somewhere wringing their hands and saying, Oh, I so hope Don gets the magic words right. I want to do this for him, but I can't unless he says it's just exactly right. And Terry said, Don, in your case, I suspect it's even worse than that. He said, in your case, I suspect you think you'll stay so eloquently that you will sway God into doing something God wasn't going to do. He said, Dummy. The only thing that is any value is for you to humble yourself before your God and ask please and say thank you. And guys, that's exactly the way it has all worked for me. I found out that if I approach prayer, the steps, any part of my recovery, if I approach it in any way as an intellectual or psychological process, it won't work any better than all the other intellectual and psychological approaches that work on alcoholism. In other words, sick, not, a, not at all. It isn't until I come like that little child, like a child that doesn't know what the picture is supposed to be on the follow the dots, but if the kid will do follow the directions to follow the dots, it will emerge. And that's the way it's always worked with me. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you that. I realized that six and seven said the seven step prayer really meant what it said. I certainly knew what the wording was. I could quote it to you backwards if you give me five minutes. But it began to realize it really means it doesn't ask God to remove all my defects of character. And it certainly does not ask God to remove the ones that are inconsistent with my little self determined objective of what I thought a spiritual town ought to be like. And above all, it does not ask God to remove the ones that are making myself centered but uncomfortable. I didn't realize for nine years that when I was praying for a character defect to be gone because I wanted it gone. I might as well have been praying for a bright red Ferrari. I was praying for my own selfish ends, and the book is so clear. It doesn't work. You can easily see why. Well, it took me nine years to easily see that one why. And, and, and it turned out that instead of, instead of being clear with God's help, I went to work on my character defects. 
it turned out being where I stopped working on my character defects, where I accepted that I couldn't work on my character defects any more effectively than I could work on drinking. It was where I went back to my God with another form of the third step and where I said, Mom, Dad, I don't know where we are. I don't know how we got here and I don't know where we're supposed to go. But I'm going to quit trying to figure it out. I've been all my life trying to figure out the patterns of my life. All my life I thought that what I needed to do was figure out the pattern so I don't know where to start stitching. And I want to tell you guys, I've got the best chance of figuring out the patterns of my life that chimpanzee does not master in quantum physics. It's just not going to happen. There's a little spark of the divine inside me, and I think of every one of you. It gives me the only glimpse of God's will I ever get. And the only glimpse I ever get is right now where to take that next stitch. I never get a glimpse of God's will five seconds now. You know, we think it'll be God's will this will be going on five seconds, but in the next five seconds, the music could get a whole lot louder. One of us could have a, 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 a heart attack or a seizure of some kind. A wet drunk could put something in here, raise his hand. Police could come in with the one of us that hadn't, hadn't completed our amends. All sorts of things could happen. You know, electricity could go to absolutely change what I'm convinced God's will will be five seconds from now. And yet, I want to worry about God's will for tomorrow. And I want to worry about God's will for five years from now. It's God's job, not man. I'm playing God when I'm trying to figure out the things. I need to stitch. I need to just follow the little spark of divine in me that tells me where to stitch. And folks, I've been doing that that way for almost 20, what, 24 or 5 years now since the year 1990. And this is so important to me. I don't think there's been a single day in, that, in all those years that if you had said, Don, are you doing the sixth and seventh thing well enough that it'll do any good today? That I would say, yeah, man, I think I'm healthy today. Every day I was sitting home now. And I, 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 I failed so often. I had to start over 50 to 100 times. It was just a matter of stumbling a couple of steps in the right directions and getting knocked over completely by self-will. For the time being, forgetting there was any such thing as a third step or, or a seventh step or an eleventh step to be alone, and having to get up and say, Mom, Dad, I'm so embarrassed, but I found it up again. Excuse me. Please give me that little spark of the mind to take the stitch and come and stumble a couple of steps in the right direction and get knocked over by self-will again. And I thought every time that happened, that was an interruption of my spiritual growth. But I found out that it's only spiritual growth of which I'm capable. And I found out that my loving God was just fine with that. He or she doesn't require perfection admitted for me. doesn't require even consistency. Technically, death with persistence. And I'll tell you a little bit, and then I'll sit down about what's happened in the time since May of 1990. If God had given, if I had made a list in May of 1990 of everything that I thought was the best I could possibly have in every single area of my life, and God had said, Don, I am so sick of your whining, I'm going to give you exactly what you have asked for. I would have shortchanged myself in every single area of my life. Every single area. When I'm willing to let go of all my self-determined objectives, when I'm willing to just try to do that next right thing, when I understand that it's not just the seventh step prayer, it's the entire part of the steps, the third step. Take away my difficulties. Not so I can be spiritually active and sober. 
people may have difficulties to figure out when they will bear witness to those that have failed of your love and our way of life. Step eight and nine, putting our lives in order, right? Yep. But on page 76, it says, yeah, we're doing that. It's not our real purpose. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and those around us. Folks, I've got to know this, that is self-obsession. I can't expect to be treated by more obsession on self. It doesn't make any difference how I address that up. And I've got an entire wardrobe for self-obsession. I've got a responsibility wardrobe. I've got a spirituality wardrobe. I've got a psychology wardrobe to dress up self-obsession and declare it not to be self-obsession because I've dressed it up differently. But regardless of how I try, it's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. It isn't until I lay aside trying to, trying to fix me and worry about how I am and what happens to me and use those of that, what I call the other 98% of the 11th step. You know, I'm going to do my morning prayer and meditation in my little checklist at night and my prayer and say, I've done the 11th step. I've done 2% of the 11th step. 98% of the 11th step is between those two counters. And the book tells me precisely what I did. All day, every day, I constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. I'll be saying to myself many times each day in quotation marks. These are not vague suggestions. They are specific points that will be done. <laughs> and, and, and when I do that, and when I, when I realize that if any part of me wants to make you love, comfort, and understand me, it's a spiritual law. I won't be what love, comfort, and understand to my satisfaction. If I'm coming from there, if you do exactly what I thought I wanted you to do before you finished, I'll change it. The only time it's possible for me to feel loved, comforted, understood, and my satisfaction is when I'm praying those prayers. I know that miracle that I talked about earlier happens. And one of the things that happens is that I wind up loved, comforted, and understood beyond my wildest dreams. And when I quit trying to fix me and worrying about me and I try to help God's kids do what they need to have done, for free and for fun, as my hero Chuck C. said, because I want to. When I do that, God never fails to take care of me in a manner that's unbelievable. I wasn't back from Cleveland uh, a month before I started dating Sharon back there. Our daughters were classmates in the same school with no one up for several years, and the only trick I used on that girl was that 11 step trip that paid so hard to work me, said me, love, comfort, and send her. Rather to be up company understood and it worked. And Shane and I do not argue. I sponsor some guys that are counselors and a couple of psychologists, and they tell me that that's not healthy to have a relationship where you don't argue. And I tell them that they are welcome to their healthy relationships. I'm doing just fine. I'm wallowing in my illness, thank you. Uh, and I'm, I'm going I'm to close with. Um, I'm going to close with something that some guys I sponsored in Louisville several years ago did to do an intervention on me. I didn't want to talk about this because I was afraid that people would think that I was bragging about me. They said, no, you must talk about it. So it is the forgiveness that non-alcoholics help us when we finally start to do the right thing passes all understanding. It just passes all understanding. When I was kicked out of the Kentucky Bar, it wasn't a matter of big deal. Whatever happened to Don Major, Red News is on the front page of the Courier Journal. Uh, I brought the bar and the distributed about his family, and it just terribly, just terribly. I didn't think that you could practice criminal defense law by spiritual principles. I, I, I remember having a, a heated argument, especially with God, telling him, all right, damn it, I'll try it, but then after I fall on my block, we'll do takers in there. Turned out spiritual principles work in everything. God's a better lawyer than I am. 
and the quiet and loving truth is the matter of sound on earth, in or out of a courtroom. And uh, <coughs> uh, I was back a few years, and I got a phone call. He said, Don, why don't you come be on this Citizens for Better Judges, where we interview the people who want to be judged and pass on whether they qualify. And a few years later, he said, Don, why don't you be chairman of that? You know, we'll put your name and papers together and get some interviews and everything. And, and God's going to send you the light for sending you. Uh, they called me up there one year, and they said, Don, please be at the bar dinner. We're giving you the Pro Bono Lawyer of the Year Award. That's any good things for nothing. The first 10 years I practiced law, nobody thought about Don majoring good things for nothing, I assure you. And, and then the real sense of humor probably is that oh, about 11 years ago, I was sitting in the barber chair and my cell phone rang. It was the president of the state bar. And he said, Don, we've got an opening on the ethics committee. <laughs> For the first 10 years I practiced law, the only people on earth I was more afraid of than the state bar ethics committee were the IRS and the FBI. <laughs> I love you all, and I thank you so much for letting me be a part of it, and have a wonderful, wonderful conference. God bless. Thank you.